you will turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we'll be reading from verses 25 to 34, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, you are indeed our our shepherd. You make us to lie down in green pastures and you lead us beside still waters. You restore our soul and you lead us uh, in paths of righteousness and you do so often, most often by the proclamation of your word. So we ask that you would bless that word tonight, that it would nourish our hearts and our soul, that we would be like a tree planted by streams of water. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're undertaking to consider Article 13 of the Belgic Confession, uh, the nature of God's providence. So we'll read that together now. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with the sin that occurs. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond these limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, 
but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under His control, so that not one of their hairs on their heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought, we rest knowing that He holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. For that reason, we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans, who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. If you will um, turn to your outlines now, we'll begin with the introductory statement that is intended really to summarize the whole of this article. We believe with reverence that God, being good and holy, as well as all-powerful, is actively engaged in ordering all things within creation in accordance with His his holy will. Now, we don't just study this article, we don't just consider this, because it's in the Belgic Confession, of course, that's why why we're considering it this evening, but the the doctrine of God's providence is, I think, something that, as I considered this, as I studied this, is, is actually timely and important for us to consider for a number of reasons, particularly in our day and age. If we think about maybe the, the last hundred years or so of uh, life in the world, the evolution of, and, and development of human thinking, there was really a, a big change in, in World War II. The world had, at least the West, had sentimentalized the notion of God's providence to kind of refer to the progress of cultures and ideologies all towards the development of of good things. They had an underdeveloped, really, doctrine of God's providence. It couldn't allow for tragedy. It couldn't allow for the horrors of what occurred in the trenches. And so, following the the tragedies and the horrors and the unspeakable acts of of World War II and all the death and and destruction that was brought about, there was really... Nietzsche was right, as it were, at least insofar as he was describing the culture and their reaction to God. God became dead. Clearly, God cannot be the God of all the things that have happened. Another, uh, another well-known writer, Burkhauer, concluded, in the, in the catastrophe, in the trenches, the caves and the concentration, concentration camps of this world, the eternal th- philanthropist was exposed as delusional. This is something really important for us to get right. If we don't understand God's providence, if we don't understand it properly in the way that Scripture presents it to us, we're bound to conclude in the midst of tragedy that either God isn't God or that we don't believe in Him. At the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, within other Christian traditions, there's this assertion of God's sovereignty and His capability to work miraculously in ways that supersede the natural order, but they also assert that that God's sovereignty and ordering within within creation is reactive. He's responding to the world rather than actively ordering and decreeing all things. And that most of his work, if not all of his work in his providence is primarily miraculous. So they overlook the the ordinary providence in everyday things and the moment-to-moment uh, changes in, in seasons and in times and in days and in seconds. 
And finally, perhaps another reason why it's important for us to consider the doctrine of God's providence is for our own lives, our own experience of the Christian life. If we fail to grasp the way that God orders and, uh, and decrees all things in His holy and infinite wisdom for our good, then what happens when we ourselves experience tragedy is that we'll make a shipwreck out of our faith. We'll be led to doubt Him. We'll be led to be angry with Him or to just give up the whole thing in general. So I hope this evening that we can speak to that this evening in ways that encourage us in our experience of the Christian life. Number one then, according to his sovereign power, God orders, decrees, determines, and rules everything that comes to pass from the beginning of time unto the end of time. So there is not a thing that happens in this world from moment to moment or millisecond to millisecond that is not a part of God's decree and not a part of his plan for the life of this world and of the events in creation. This leads us then to letter A. God is not reacting to creation and then intervening miraculously to change things that happen in a world of creatures and free moral agents who reflect his image. The concept that he is reacting to creation is a formulation of God's providence more in accordance with other Christian traditions. And you can imagine why they might come to this formulation for determining the way that God orders or the way that the world is and that God interacts with it. They want to preserve uh, their understanding of man's free will. But the problem with this is not only that it's an error in understanding the nature of providence, but it's also an error in our doctrine of God. Either God is sovereign, or he, sovereign, all-powerful, or He is not. Either He is all-powerful, outside of time, infinite and almighty, far and above what we can conceive of in His being and in His majesty, or He is not. So you, you cannot have a God that is all-powerful and sovereign and outside of time and infinite in His being and does not order each and every moment of creation in accordance with His sovereign and wise counsel. At the same time, however, while we acknowledge these truths that, that, you know, that, that we believe that God is sovereign, we believe that He is all-wise, we also want to take seriously their concern. This leads us to letter B. It's a concern that we must take seriously. If God is actively working and decreeing all things in creation, does this remove the freedom of the will of humans and creatures alike? Are we just scripted? And the answer to this, of course, is no. It does not remove the freedom of the will. We'll find there are a couple of reasons for this. Beginning in letter C, one of the answers to this is that providence is a Trinitarian act. God the Father holds all things together in the Son, Colossians 1.17, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We saw the nature of this Trinitarian act work itself out in creation, in the inspiration of scriptures, in the way that God did not override human minds to inspire the scriptures, but came together along with them by the work of his spirit. We saw how even in creation, he speaks a divine word, let, the, let there be light and let there be the earth. But he also set, calls out to the earth, saying, let the earth bring forth. So there's a difference between the way that he operates in those two regards. Letter D. 
God decrees things to come to pass through secondary causes. That is to say, he moves through means. Now, God is the first cause, but the forces of nature and the free actions of personal beings whom God has created are secondary causes. That is to say, they are the means. This means that we can affirm two things simultaneously. The first subpoint there, letter I, Scripture, Roman numeral one, actually. Scripture clearly teaches that God predestines all things. And we see what I think perhaps is my favorite example of this in the research that I did in Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot being dice. Even something as, as ridiculous as the casting of dice, God decrees and orders. Roman numeral 2, under letter D. Scripture also clearly attributes decisions and actions to human agents. These are both things that we have to hold in tandem simultaneously. It's for this reason that Luther spoke of a milkmaid and a baker as masks that God hides behind in order to answer our prayer for daily sustenance. God is the decree and the giver, and yet he hides his glorious majesty and terrifying power behind the creaturely means that are familiar to us, that we can perceive of. And that we could continue to draw on this analogy of prayer, of praying for bread, which we're instructed to do, if God is not sovereign in this way, decreeing not only our prayers, but the fulfillment and answering of our prayers within creation, then prayer itself becomes vain. God, we believe that God decrees our prayers as the means through which all things reach their appointed ends. But to deny his ordering of creation and even our prayers, to deny that he decrees those things as a means for things to come to their appointed ends is really to flip the paradigm of creation on its head and to put man in the seat directing God. In this scheme, if God does not decree our prayers and the answer to our prayers themselves... The fact that we, if he doesn't decree the fact that we do pray, that we do come to him in prayer, then what happens is that unless it pleases, unless it so pleases men, God doesn't really move. Because then God is dependent on me to pray for him to act. So it's actually really to put God back in the driving seat to assert that he decrees all things, even our prayers. And letter E, <clears throat> with regard to the reality that Scripture upholds both God's predestining of all things and the free actions of moral agents, we need reverence for this doctrine. This is why we need reverence for this doctrine. God's activity in ordering history never threatens the reality of human agency because his being is above and beyond our own. We accept these doctrines because the scripture teaches it, and at the same time, because we recognize his sovereign power and the infinite immensity of his being and our contingency upon him. We can't accept these doctrines if we don't have a proper view of our place in the universe and God's almighty being and power. The scriptures 
declare both of these things to be true, the, the culpability of mankind, for the, the responsibility of mankind for his own actions, and God's sovereign power decreeing all things and bringing them to pass. So we have no reason or warrant to reject revealed mysteries simply because we don't comprehend it. And so this is why I think the confession labors to say this, that we do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without, being, without going beyond those limits. And therefore, we can also conclude with Thomas Aquinas in this idea of concursus. That's a Latin word that means uh, to run together. There is a, a simultaneity, a, a, a contemporaneous nature to the way that God brings about uh, his plan and the human agency in the accomplishment of those actions. When the free will, as Aquinas stated, when the free will moves itself, this does not exclude its being moved by another from whom it receives the very power to move itself. When the free will moves itself, this does not exclude its being moved by another from whom it receives the very power to move itself. Number two, according to his wisdom and holiness, everything God decrees is consistent with his nature. It is wise and it is good, that is, without sin, for the purpose of his own glory. Letter A, this is a, another concern that we have to take seriously, a critique of the reformed position of predestin on predestination. If God is actively working and decreeing all things in creation, does that not make him the author of evil actions? And the answer to this, letter B, is no. Because God, the primary cause, operates through secondary causes, that is means, his decrees do not make him responsible for the actions of moral agents who act. Now we want to ask, why is this? And how do we know this to be true? brings us to that first sub-point there. A decree is not the same as the fulfillment or the accomplishment, and yet the decree itself will not only certainly come to pass, but it will be freely done by the agent. A decree is not the same thing as the act. That's to complete the two. Additionally, God not only decrees what is going to happen, but that it will be done freely by the agent. So the fact that you freely operate is a part of God's decree for human life, that you would act in ways that are in accordance with your own nature as a moral agent, as a thinking, feeling being. So it's not fatalism, it's not robotics, it's none of the above. There's a complexity to it. Additionally, another thing to consider in this scheme is letter C. There is a difference between the way that God acts and decrees and the way that we act and make distinct decisions. To oversimplify the way that God decrees things and makes, brings things to pass is to make a, an, a, a serious error. 
because it's actually to put his being and his way of operating um, not on an analogical level, level that recognizes that God is above and beyond what we can conceive of in his being, and to actually bring him down into the earthly way of operating, the human way of thinking and making and acting and, and thinking and, uh, and moving. And so for this reason, <clears throat> recognizing that God, the way that God operates and decrees things and brings them to pass and orders the universe is different from the way that I decree that or, or determine that tomorrow morning I'm going to go get donuts, is to recognize that there's a difference in that. There's a difference in the way that he operates. This brings us to the subpoint Roman numeral, numeral one. We distinguish between God's permissive decrees and his positive determination. This is a complex point. I, I, I struggle to understand it. Um, so we're asserting here that there is an essential difference between what God actively and directly decrees in our lives and what he permissively decrees. This does not mean that the fulfillment of an event is not certain to God, but simply that he permits them to come to pass by the free agency of his rational creatures. And we use this language intentionally because it, it helps us speak about the way God orders creation in such a way that we don't make God the author of sin. God is not actively willing sin and decreeing sin in the way that, same way that he operates to sanctify us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this brings us to number three. According to his redemptive purposes. God decrees, God's decrees do not lack direction, but have the preservation, sanctification, and glorification of the elect, as well as his own praise and glory as its definitive goal. So God's work in history is not aimless. It's not whimsical. It's not without a goal or end. Ultimately, it's to the praise of his glory and the means through which he accomplishes his glory is through the people that he is reconciling to himself. So letter A, God's providence operates generally over all of creation to restrain sin, to restrain his wrath, and to bless the world, but it also operates specially for the elect. Last time we were together, we spoke on God's common grace an example of this would be Matthew 5.45. Uh, he makes the rain to shine on the wicked as well, or he makes the rain to fall on the wicked as well as the righteous. How can this be? Have you ever wondered why, if, for example, God is love and that love is made known to us in Christ, how unbelievers can have successful marriages? Or why unbelievers prosper even though they might perpetuate wickedness? That's common grace in accordance with his decree. He makes the rain to shine on both the elect and the wicked. Now, this is an important category because recognizing God's hand in his general providence, in his common grace, actually gives us the ability to appreciate things, to use things and enjoy things in the world. So the Spirit is just as active in bestowing his gifts of life and liberty, love, Friendship, vocation, knowledge, creativity, government, development, development in science, progress, government, etc. He's as active in all of those things as he is in bestowing gifts, uh, saving gifts upon the people of God. And so then we can enjoy non-Christian art. We can enjoy art, science, non-believing rulers. 
and parents, all of which contribute not only to the common good, but also to salvation. So these aren't ends in and of themselves, but God's common grace, his activity in doing all of these things and promoting life and culture and goodness within the world, ultimately speaking, serves the elect. Creates an environment in which the gospel will go forth and people can come to saving faith in him. Letter B. He decrees in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13, and at the same time actively determines to permit evil that he will overcome for his glory and our glorification. Now once again, we phrase it like this because as we noted earlier, God is not the author of sin and yet our sin is not inconsistent with or unbeknownst to him. But it's perfectly consistent with his decrees. It's not as if God is unaware that we are going to sin and it's also not as if our sin is foreign to his decrees. And the same would go for our sanctification. <clears throat> At the same time, this means that not only your sanctification is certain, but also so is your victory over your sin. Ultimately speaking, in terms of glorification. Why? Because when God permits evil in his decree, he does not simply let it happen, but he determines how far he will let it continue and exactly what he is going to do about it. Word, sacrament, all pointing back to Christ. So Paul can justly say that he who began in Philippians, the same letter where he says that God is, you know, God, it is God who wills and works according to his good pleasure in you. In the same letter he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. How does he accomplish that? Well, he can do it through the words of his apostles. Paul, who in Philippians 4.19 goes on to say, what you have seen and learned and received and heard in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So he uses means, means to certainly accomplish his promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He has not only determined the sin that we commit, but what he will do to overcome it. Letter C. God's general providence in creation and his special providence in the life of his elect is important for the experience of the Christian life and faith because it assures you and I personally that all things are indeed worked and decreed by him for our good. That's Romans 8.28. And what is the sure knowledge that you have that this is indeed true, that all things work together for your good? What convinces us of God's total control and power over all things, over sin itself, and of his, of his commitment to overcome it, and, his, and of his good plans for your life? What is it that convinces me of that truth even when I can't see it, even when I'm blind, when things are, are Everywhere I look and everywhere I analyze appear to be the, to the contrary. What is it that convinces me that God is sovereign in ordering all things together for good even in the trenches of World War II? What is it that convinces me when I'm in a foxhole 
and mortars are crashing around me and bullets whizzing over the hole that I'm hidden under, that God is good and that he will work all things together for my salvation. What is it in the midst of unspeakable tragedy in the everyday life that we experience in the 21st century where all things seem certain to us? Tomorrow's tomorrow's breakfast. Friday's dinner. What is it in the midst of all of those things that convinces me? The resurrection of Christ. In the midst of, letter D, in the midst of unspeakable tragedy, we have comfort as we experience God's providence in our lives through the sure evidence of the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ and his victory over sin and death. That also convinces us, by the way, the resurrection, penal substitutionary atonement, whereby Christ, God poured out the wrath of God for us against sin on Christ and his subsequent resurrection, that also convinces us and tells us that God is not a cruel God up in the heavens toying with our lives as if, as if it were a game. It's not a joke to him. Your end destiny, the end destiny of his people, is not a game. Michael Horton writes, How do we know that God works all things together for our salvation, even in the midst of prevailing circumstances to the contrary? Not because we see their resolution here and now or can grasp their resolution in our intellectual vision, but because we have heard God's promise. The promise is already confirmed by the fact that at the moment of the greatest injustice, when God seemed to be the most hidden and absent, God was the most active and victorious. Do you know how important that is for your life to understand and believe and be heartily convinced through the resurrection, that everything God orders for your life is for your good? As I, I thought about that, I thought, maybe I'm, maybe I'm preaching to the choir for some of you old saints who have persevered through a life of tragedy and pain and sorrow and sin and death and continue to trust that faithful promise. But this is one that I think is, is personal to me. It, it, it matters to me because I've seen so many young folk, friends, colleagues who have abandoned the church, who have abandoned Christ because they couldn't make sense of what God was doing in their life, in his providence. It didn't quite correlate to their expectations of what's good or what they wanted or what they demanded from God. This is important for our experience of the Christian life. It's important for our, exp- our life of faith to believe heartily that what he is doing in your life in the midst of financial ruin, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of death, in, our, in your loneliness and in your anxiety is ultimately for not only your present sanctification but for your glorification. 
I can trust that the slings and the arrows of outrageous misfortune, God will not only turn for my good, but has decreed for my good, for my sanctification, for my glorification, and for my place in his house for all eternity. So look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How much more so you, you for whom he did not spare his own son, will he order all things together for your good? Let's pray. Father, we heartily believe that you do indeed decree even our prayers, even this prayer, to bring about your will for our lives. So we ask now that you would create in us hearty faith in the moments of our lives, both the good, the bad, and the ugly, that you are a good, gracious, loving Father who provides all that we need for life and for righteousness. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.